if you take out the book of Ruth, you can go from Genesis and read the second Kings, and you're basically reading one story. It just goes continuously. And uh, so that's really uh, exciting and, uh, you know, powerful to us. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of distinction between first and second Samuel. You read right, right from one into the other, and we really need to know uh, First Samuel. We studied that last year, if you were here, and uh, I'm sure you've read it and studied it. But it's a really helpful basis and background for what we're going to study. Basically, in First Samuel, um, who, who was really leading the people of Israel at the beginning of First Samuel? Eli. Who was a what? He was a high priest and he was a what? Judge. Judge. Uh, his sons were not so good. And uh, ultimately, who became the judge in Eli's place when he fell and broke his neck? Samuel, Samuel was a judge and also a priest and also a prophet. And uh, he led the people and he also was responsible for anointing kings. As it turns out, the people clamored for a king. Uh, they wanted a king sort of like what? Like all those nations around them. And God gave them a king like? All the nations around them. And what was that king's name? Saul. Saul. And how did that work out? Not so good. Uh, he was a humble man when he began to serve as king, but that didn't last him long. And uh, that really became a big problem for him, uh, that he was so prideful in the end and rebellious, didn't listen to the word of the Lord. And uh, who was the major enemy of the Israelites in, uh, in that day? The yes, the Philistines. And uh, what ended up happening uh, to Saul, according to 1 Samuel 31, he died... Yeah, it's hard to say by the hand of who. It was in the battle with the Philistines. He was badly wounded. And what happened? Yeah, he ended up falling on his sword and that finished him off. According to the account in 1 Samuel 31, uh, do you have any questions or comments uh, up to this point? They were just the review of 1 Samuel. Alright, well, as we start into 2 Samuel, uh, we read something that kind of will cause us to scratch our head a little bit. But let's go ahead and read this whole account, and uh, we'll talk about uh, the discrepancy with 1 Samuel 31 as well as some other points. So when somebody reads 2 Samuel 1, verses uh, 1 to 16. Now it came about the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. 
And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me. For agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of Yahweh, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him and, di and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. Okay, as you look at this account, now it came about after the death of Saul. Does that remind you of anything? Would somebody look at the beginning of Joshua? Would somebody else look at the beginning of Judges? Seems to be a common way that we begin a book uh, through here. What does it say in the beginning of Joshua? Now it came about after the death of Moses, beginning of Judges. Now it came about after the death of Joshua. Now it came about after the death of Saul. And we uh, have this uh, Amalekite who uh, comes to David. Now, uh, does this uh, account, him coming to, to him, uh, clothes torn with news about the battle and so forth, does that remind you of anything uh, from uh, uh, from the book of First Samuel. Anybody thought about that? When Eli was told of his son's death. Yes, First Samuel four twelve. It says, "Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head, and he reported the uh, death of Hophni and Phineas and the capture of the ark and things like that." So this is sort of a, a similar way of describing this. Kind of interesting how this is. And uh, well, the report that this Amalekite man gives doesn't exactly fit the report that we had in 1 Samuel 31, right? Because how did David die in 1 Samuel 31 ultimately? Fell on his own sword. But according to this report in 2 Samuel 1, how did he die? Yeah, the Amalekite found him and, and killed him. You know, Saul was leaning on his spear and he, he says, uh, you know, please kill me uh, because I'm, I'm dying. And so I killed him. Now, this is the sort of thing that provides fodder for the atheists who believe that there are contradictions in the Bible. Here's a prime example of a contradiction in the Bible. One chapter says... Saul fell on his own sword, and the next chapter says the Amalekite killed him. Amalekite killed him. You know, you kind of wonder if, if, if this is really a contradiction, how the person who wrote Samuel didn't bother to notice that. You know, I mean, that one's one that, you know, most any of us 
could have seen that if we were writing the story and we write one, one paragraph that Saul killed himself and we write the next paragraph the Amalekite killed him, wouldn't, you wouldn't have to be very smart to figure out, you know, that doesn't exactly fit together. I'd better decide which story I'm going to tell or something like that. So I think there's a better explanation for us than just the idea, well, you know, the Bible just contradicts itself. You know, here's one tradition, here's another tradition, and they just kind of spliced them together and didn't bother to reconcile them. So what, what do you think we have here? Any, any ideas? The possibility is that he's lying in order to gain the favor of David. Okay, that's a possibility. Could it be that this Amalekite would be lying? Now, if he was lying, what would we expect? What, 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 would you, what would be kind of the context in which you would expect somebody to be lying? He's afraid for his life. Either he's afraid or... Um, in like chapter 4, verse 10, he, David speaks of him as one who's desiring a reward. Yeah, could it be that he's got a motive? Could there be something he thinks he'll get out of it? if he tells the story that he killed David. Now, you know, who would you more likely be supposed to believe? The account in 1 Samuel 31 or the account in 2 Samuel 1? What, what, would, give, what would you give you a reason to believe the credibility of 1 Samuel 31? The narrator's talking. The narrator's the inspired man. You know, so if the narrator says this is what happened, then we have confidence this is what happened. If an Amalekite says this is what happened, do you remember anything about Amalekites in 1 Samuel? They were supposed to be wiped out. They were supposed to be wiped out by Saul. Do you remember anything else about Amalekites near the end of 1 Samuel? They attacked Ziklag. Yeah, remember when David was with the Philistines, presumably on the offensive, um, though not really, uh, and uh, uh, against uh, against Israel. And while he and his men were gone from their city of Ziklag, the Amalekites came and took all the stuff, took all the people, and burned the town. So, what's our opinion of Amalekites by the time we come to the beginning of Second Samuel one? Like. Yeah, they're enemy. So you already assume the narrator's telling the truth and you assume an Amalekite's bad news. And we have a reason to believe that this Amalekite could be lying. Now, this is a little complicated though. Because the Amalekite the Amalekite sort of has evidence that he's telling the truth. What's the evidence? Yeah, he has the crown of the bracelet from Saul. <clears throat> So doesn't that prove he's telling the truth? Maybe. What would be the scenario? Could have picked it up after Saul was dead. Yes. You know, what if he came across Saul's body, you know, after he died? He was kind of a scavenger who collected up the, the royal insignia, confiscated them and gives it to, to David, but isn't it going to sound better if he says that he killed him too? Now, why would he assume that would sound better? Looks like David's enemy. Saul would be David's enemy. Not only David's enemy, but also kind of what? 
Competition. Competition. You know, he's the rival on the throne. You know, he would have assumed that the surest way to the favor of the new king is to be instrumental in removing the previous occupant. You know, so if he's the guy who bumped Saul off, now David can become king, wouldn't David give him a reward? You know, because after all, you know, they're kind of rivals for the throne. He perhaps assumes that David would have felt the same way he would have felt. You know, people assume that a lot of times. You know, they think that if they'd be jealous and vengeful, or if they'd be competitive and self-seeking, that you would be too. Sometimes it's hard for people in the world even to understand Christians. Because it seems like they don't act normal. <laughs> you know, like the world would act. So we would imagine that he would think like a worldly person, and that he would assume that, that David would reward him. You know, so I think he claims responsibility for something he never did. <laughs> you know, that, that ended up not turning out quite so well for him. <laughs> Maybe he should have been honest. You know, it would have probably uh, prolonged his life. And uh, here's this guy, he probably didn't know what those Amalekites dig in, did in Ziklag. The Amalekites seem to have been kind of nomadic groups. There seemed to have been a lot of... Uh, Amalekite groups. So now he wouldn't necessarily have known what the Amalekite group that sacked and burned Ziklag had done. So he may not realize that to say he's Amalekite is, you know, like waving a red flag in front of a bull already. <laughs> you know, and Dave, but David knows that. And uh, it's kind of ironic though. I mean, at any rate, the Amalekite was the one who managed to, you know, get a hold of the crown and bracelet. Do you see how Saul's career was punctuated by unfortunate intrusions of Amalekites? He never seems to come out very good when it comes to interaction with Amalekites. And uh, at, at the very least, this guy has come across those things and he gives them to David. If David had been a lesser person, how would he have responded to the Amalekite? Yeah, man, this is my lucky day. He would have been gleeful. You know, this would have been awesome. Oh, wow. This is just what I was looking for. But David was not a lesser person. And so it backfired against the Amalekite. What a shock to him. You know, because what does David order done to the Amalekite? Execution. On the basis of? He killed God's anointed, something you remember. In 1 Samuel, David had refused to do even when he had wonderful opportunities to do it. And, and so even if, if the Amalekite had realized that, it might have given him pause. <laughs> but, but is it really right for David to execute the Amalekite when maybe the Amalekite didn't even really do it? But he said he did it. David has no way of knowing that he Yes. So he's convicting on the basis of what? His own confession. David has no other data to go on, but the man says he did that. So really, who can he blame for his execution? His own lie that he himself told, convicting him on the basis of his own word, I think is, is certainly appropriate. 
So many times you start doing the wrong thing and it'll get you in trouble that you weren't expecting. And certainly dishonesty has all sorts of bad fruits all over the Bible. So, that's the way this story begins with the death of Saul and uh, with the uh, rewarded Amalekite, rewarded for his crimes, not for his, uh, what he's done positively. Comments and thoughts on this story. This may have uh, led to several thoughts and comments in your mind. Eric? It's cool that in uh, verse 11, all of the men that were with David tore their clothes when in chapter 24 and 26 of 1 Samuel, they were urging him to kill the same guy, so they, they changed their attitude. Very good point. Yes, very good point. And, and a very good point that all of them, including David, mourn Saul and Jonathan. We'll see that more in a moment. But just what you wouldn't have thought, they, they are grieving Saul and Jonathan's death. We're not happy that he's gone. We're, we're upset that he has been improperly, you know, killed. Other comments and thoughts? Chris? Is it possible that the Amalekite was telling the truth? Anything's possible? Give a case for that. I think the scenario in 1 Samuel could have been generic or... Uh, kind of a overview. Falling on your sword even today means a lot more than just falling on your sword. You know, so could it be that, you know, he says he fell on his sword, he wanted to die, and the way he did it was through the Amalekite. So that would be another possibility. Okay. All of those things are always worth considering. Uh, if you took falling on the sword in 1 Samuel 31 that way, where uh, you know, Saul took his sword and fell on it as a figure of speech. He took his sword and fell on it in the sense that he asked the Amalekite to kill him. Then that would be a possibility. That becomes an interpretive question. Wouldn't change the story a great deal. Yes? Well, a possibility with that, too, is that perhaps he fell on the sword, <coughs> thought he was dead, killed himself, and then later on the Amalekite came along. Okay, but yeah. My comment was going to be... Um, it kind of speaks to the loyalty of David. Not only was he, I mean, he was grieved at the passing of Saul um, because he was God's anointed, but this was also a man who had been pursuing him, like, nonstop. He had continuously chased after him over and over and over again. Any person would be relieved that that kind of person had was gone and no longer a threat, and yet David was still sorry that, you know, Saul was gone. So. Very good point, yes. A really good attitude on David's part. Certainly, he was not ambitious and self-seeking. He respected the Lord. The Lord had anointed Saul. Yeah, very good. Other thoughts, questions? Okay. Would somebody read 17 to 27? Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there not be dew nor rain upon you, nor fields or offerings of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. 
the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, and the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put on ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the, war, and the weapons of war perished. So, here is the lamentation of David as he, uh, you know, publicly expresses his grief. Um, he does not try to deny the grief, and he's willing to express it openly. Uh, how, do you, how does David feel as he says this, as he sings this? Sad. He's really sad. He thinks about their good qualities. He thinks about what these, Saul and, and Jonathan especially, have been able to do. how they might be ridiculed in the, the cities of the enemies. Yeah. You know, it, he says at the very beginning, you know, in, in verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exalt. Now, what were Gath and Ashkelon? Two of the five main Philistine cities. And uh, don't tell it there. You know, why not tell it there? They're like the arch enemies in 1 Samuel. Yes. And so if you tell them what's happened to Saul, they'll gloat. You know, they'll be excited. After all, who was the battle that Saul was fighting in against? The Philistines. So we don't want to let them know that in a sense they won that battle. You know, uh, so so that's a that's a you know interesting approach to to that uh, lamentation. He says, "O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings." What's the deal with mountains of Gilboa? That's where Saul was slain. Exactly, First Samuel thirty-one. Saul was killed there. In fact, I believe this is true that the only references to Gilboa in scripture are references connected with Saul's death. Mount Gilboa is only known in the Bible for the death of Saul. Well, this is such a tragedy that it's almost like the mountain is being held responsible for Saul's death and he wants this scene of disaster to remain barren. Kind of as a, a reminder of the tragedy. Don't even let it rain or even have dew on the fields. Because this is the place where God's anointed was slain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. The shield of Saul was not anointed with oil? Do you anoint shields with oil? 
was not with Saul. That's true. Do you anoint shields with oil? Right. If they're made of leather, you put oils on them to preserve them or cure them. Perhaps. There may be even another reason to anoint your shield. You know what it would be? Perhaps for a deflection. Maybe. Yes. That if, if you come against that with a spear, if it's slicker with the oil on it, it slides off. That's what I've read is the purpose of anointing the shields at any rate. But it won't be anointed now. Whatever the purpose, you know, shield of Saul will fall into disuse because Saul's not there to use it. What a tragedy. And uh, he thinks about the great accomplishments of Saul and Jonathan. You know, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. They, they were so uh, victorious. God blessed them with great military successes. You know, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Now he's spoken... Uh, about the daughters of the Philistines in verse 20 and he hopes that they won't know so they won't rejoice he tells the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul how have the mighty fallen he says that in verse 19 verse 25 verse 27 kind of the, the refrain here and he speaks especially of his close attachment to Jonathan what kind of a relationship did they have very, very close, an extremely close friendship, which I believe is a bit unusual given the circumstances. What circumstances would have made it unlikely that, saw, that Jonathan and David would have become close friends? Saul wanted him dead. And they were both going to be king. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jonathan was the crown prince. But they all seem to know David's going to be the one. I mean, they're sort of, I mean, from a human standpoint, you'd expect them to be rivals because they're both kind of in competition for kingship. And uh, so that would be a big, uh, a big thing. Uh, and, and in many cases, you know, you take two people who either one of them might be in line to be king, they wouldn't like each other. <laughs> They'd be trying to elbow each other out of the way or, or whatever. Not so in this case. They were a model of true friendship. In fact, look at what David says. He says, your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. He had such a close, deep relationship with Jonathan. There's a lot of great things to be said about the relationship between David and Jonathan and also a lot of great things to be said about the kinds of bonds of friendship and closeness that brothers ought to share. And, and there's nothing, some people have very improperly mistaken this friendship for something immoral, which is really a tragedy. Because it's almost like worldly people have gotten so corrupt in their thinking that they think there's no such thing as a pure friendship among men. That is a shame because there ought to be. Proverbs speaks a lot about the importance of close friendship. You certainly see that in the Gospels between Jesus and the disciples. You see it throughout the rest of the New Testament. The, the close family, the close body relationship 
that you had between fellow Christians. You know, what an amazing uh, blessing that we can have. And so it's important that that not be, uh, you know, looked down upon in any way. Comments or thoughts? Yeah, Eric. Well, when you think about the, the role of the wife in the Bible, it's to be the helpmate of, of the man and to be the support of the man. And Jonathan was a very supportive of David and him being the king, and he did everything he could to help him out with, with all of that. So from that perspective, he was being a very good support and helper to him. Sure. Yeah, and they just really cared a lot about each other and were very devoted to each other. And, uh, yeah, Seth? Uh, in verse 23, uh, reading through First Samuel, I don't remember Saul being too beloved and pleasant, especially to David. Is this David just eulogizing them? And, and <laughs> well, you know, we say that, but there were good moments. I mean, you know, we think about the bad ones, and certainly there were plenty of those, especially near the end. But early on, they had a real attachment to each other. I mean, you know, Saul was playing the harp for, or David was playing the harp for Saul, and, uh, you know, became his, you know, son-in-law and the captain of his army. And I do think David is looking on the good side of Saul. But isn't it true in some ways that sort of speaks of David's character? I mean, how could you have been David, had the chance in the cave, and then later when the, the army was, you know, supernaturally asleep in, in the camp, you had the chance to kill Saul twice and you don't do it. If you don't somehow see God's hand and see good things even in a man like Saul, that's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us to be able to see the good qualities in somebody we don't like. But I think David really did. And obviously when he dies, he's reflecting more on that, especially thinking about this as being such a tragic death with the Amalekite killing him. So uh, maybe David has a better ability than we do to be able to appreciate good qualities even in a man like Saul. Thoughts? Yeah. Saul keep, Thoughts. Uh, David keeps going back to the fact that Saul is God's anointed. Um, I, I think... David is, is definitely focusing on God's hand in Saul. Um, yes. I think that helps him keep a good attitude. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the basis upon which David has not taken Saul's life. He would not reach out his hand against the Lord's anointing. Yes, Patrick. I think also you can really see that, I mean, any value that anyone has is directly from the Lord. Um, the value of Saul and his goodness and the reason why David is mourning is because he's God's anointed. Uh, you know, we've been talking about, you know, David seeing these good things in Saul because of his God's character. You know, all these things are directly because of God. Um, and that's, I just think it's really powerful to see like what, what he said, God's hand directly working in these people. Good point. Anything else? All right, well, I mean, this kind of changes the, uh, the playing field now. Saul is, is gone. And I mean, David has been anointed by Samuel. There's a lot of indications that David would be the next king. In fact, 
Nearly everybody said that at one time or another, it seems like. Saul himself admitted that a couple of times. Jonathan has said that. Abigail said that. And so we're kind of expecting that. Um, and so chapter 2, would somebody read verses 1 to 4? Uh, 